I mean, I know we're responsible for the story now. Yep, you are. But you are. You are. You're we making are. Sure you're, this case is going to get solved because of you. I hope so. That I mean, that's my hope. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. All with the aim of a healthy life, a more informed life, a good life. Yes. And unfortunately... <laughs> Not this episode is not necessarily talking about the good life. We're talking about true crime li- again. Is, we're talking about true crime. Yeah, it's hard to. It's really hard for me. I'm trying to temper my passion for this episode and for this genre of podcasting. We explore once again the why of true crime. Why is this such a hot genre? Why are women into it? What is it about it? And we this time we have pretty new spin on it. We have a wonderful guest, somebody who has become a friend, somebody who I'm, I've been doing a couple things helping out with uh, for their show. And this is Sarah James McLaughlin of Appalachian Mysteria, which is an excellent, excellent podcast produced by my good friend, Maddie Stout and Jam Street Media. They have four seasons out at the moment. And their very first season, which really launched the show, is about the horribly tragic double murder of uh, two West Virginia students in January 1970, West Virginia University. It's a very tragic story. We do get into some of the details of that story, but we talk about true crime in general with Sarah, and she's a fantastic guest, and I'm very excited for her. I'm very excited for her success and for her show, and she's really, really, really knowledgeable about this subject, and I think listeners will enjoy this now. Just warning, okay? We're, we're going to talk about some tragic crimes. I want to tease people here a little bit because, yes, I'm a transportation nerd. And the impact of transportation on your ability to get killed actually gets discussed in, in this episode. It's pretty awesome how I tied it all together. Don't you think, Gwen? Lovely. It was It's as lovely as your hair, Rudy. Every episode. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, Indeed. this uh, this episode is really cool because it is, it's not just about that case, but it's also the process that Sarah went to. She actually, you know, was launched into the spotlight as a podcaster and now is an expert on this case. And just from starting from an interest, from curiosity, and then investigating and seeing where it could go. And there's going to be, you know, like a resolution to this. There's going to be more people are aware, more people are talking, brought a community together. It's really extraordinary. And yeah, we talk about the underpinnings of true crime in general. Who gets featured in true crime? What stories do we care about and why? So there's a bit of this cultural underpinning to it that we also dive into. It's a great episode. Sarah's awesome. Yeah. And and for anybody out there that's interested in the true crime genre, and if you're wondering, how do people get into that? How does that take over your life? When you get so focused on a case and you kind of own that case, like, what's that like? What's that responsibility like on a going forward basis? We talk about all of that on this episode. It's a truly fascinating exploration into the impact of true crime on an individual's life and how they got into it and the why. Yeah. And we will be linking her podcast in the show notes. I also tweeted it out. You can check it out on our Patreon as well. Just a really, really cool podcast. Can I, I pitch you on a, to it. Can I- can, oh, I, yeah. can I pitch you on, oh, a, on a, title? a title? I like this. I like this <laughs> okay. whole pitching title thing when we were recording. The why of true crime? Oh, yeah. I like Do it. Do you like that? Is that Does yeah. that work? Yeah, you sound very philosophical there. Right? The why of true crime. I mean, because think about it. We Sarah gets into how she, what was her why, what kept her mm-hmm. in it, how her life has changed as a result of it. So 
the why of true crime. The why of true crime. Here we go. Sarah, welcome to Good is in the Details. I'm so excited to talk about true crime. This is our third podcast episode where we're talking about true crime. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. I feel really honored to be invited on the show. Well, you have a really top rated, what, it was something like over 1.4 thousand like reviews? It's more like like 2.4 thousand, like 2.5. Oh my goodness. Their podcast is one of the tops that's out there when you're thinking about true crime. And I just got to start, Sarah, really like first- you are an expert. You're clearly super smart because we've listened to the podcast. You were amazing. But who are you and why did you start a true crime podcast? <laughs> well, I was really nobody that had anything to do with the true crime circuit when I got started with this. My husband, who is then my boyfriend, possibly fiance, he was going to a wedding in Spain for two weeks and I had just started a new job. So I didn't have any PTO. And I'm like, how am I going to, how am I going to? take up my time. And for whatever reason, I had this memory of my parents telling me about this gruesome crime where these women were found without their heads. I mean, just just something for me to to look into and see if that was true, if that was legend, you know, some kind of myth. And I just dove in and I found out so much about that case that not only was it not legend, it was even more complex than I had ever imagined. And I didn't know what to do with that information. So I put it into a post on the subreddit, Unresolved Mysteries. I just put everything that I could into that. And I was really hoping that the person that I had found the most information from was on a web sleuth post. His name was uh, Geocam. I was hoping that he would find it. And I kind of figured out who he was. At first, I thought, well, he's really into like geocaching or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it turns out it was Jeffrey Cameron Fuller. So geocam, he had already written a fictionalized version of the crime, but he was really interested. And I was like, man, I really, I really want to talk to this guy, but his email is like 10 years old. So I'm just going to put this out there. If something happens, something happens. I was just really thirsty to find out more about this case. I thought that it was just crazy that there hadn't been some kind of expose done on it already. And eventually it got his attention. He reached out to me and I was like, hey, uh, if this isn't too forward, let's have some dinner and talk about these two decapitated teenagers. And he was like, absolutely. So that's how I met Jeff. And I had met Kendall through his girlfriend. I actually met her first and she was having a housewarming party and, you know, I had a few in me and I was like, hey, you know, everybody loves me at parties. Do you guys (laughs) want to hear about the worst crime that's ever happened in the city that you just bought a house from? (laughs) And they were like, yeah. So I told him the story about married Malarik and Karen Farrell and Kendall was super interested. And he was like, have you ever considered bringing this to a larger audience. And I'm like, what are you what are you talking about? This is my audience. And he's like, no, like podcasts. I've done some podcasts in the past. And I'm like, sure. I've never listened to a podcast. That just wasn't mm. something that I'd done. So I've got Jeff who's like, hey, let's write a book. And then I've got Kendall who's like, hey, let's do a podcast. And so it was just really serendipitous. And we all met at the same time. We started the project with podcasts. The book wouldn't have been as popular without the podcast. So it just really worked out. And we were able to talk to a lot of people that were involved. And we were able to just sort of be stewards of the case, basically. Yeah, you guys are you definitely nationally and internationally known as the, the, the latest stewards of the case. You've clearly reopened it. And we'll talk more about what you're specifically referring to as 
the WVU co-ed murders. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that. But I have to ask, can I ask you a personal question? Of course. You didn't have any childhood trauma or any like you weren't like there wasn't like a serial killer running around when you were a kid that made you like get into horror or true crime. Like you were a normal person and then bam. I mean, normal is subjective, but oh, it is, and I'm not normal. So just, just <laughs> want to put that out there. But, 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 just curious. I, I want to get into the psychology a little bit of it. Of, of somebody like you, who you are an expert at this, and you're obsessed with it. I just want to know why. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it's just really weird. So I have this tendency to hyperfocus on things, right? And I find it just really easy to hyperfocus on things involving horror, like horror films. I love horror films. I can put on comedy, but it's not its not always engaging. If I put on horror, like, you've got my attention. I'm going to watch the whole thing, even if it sucks. I'm going to watch okay. it. I'm waiting for, like, that awesome scene where you, like, crush somebody. I, I just watched, like, All Quiet on the Western Front, and I was telling my husband, I'm like, this is horror. <laughs> they yes. just ran over a dude with a tank, and he's like, they don't call it horror. I'm like, it's a crossover. That is horror. Amen. So, Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not into period pieces and I really wasn't into history when I started this, but I did start to appreciate the history side of it because we were recording people that were never, they were never going to be recorded if we weren't there. We recorded a 95 year old man. That wouldn't exist if the timing wasn't just right, you know? It sounds like you are somebody who's interested into the horror genre. And that that at least is is a tie-in into stuff that is grisly, stuff that is gruesome, doesn't... I don't want to be presumptuous. It doesn't sound like it freaks you out. Well, I will say that there is definitely a difference between the horror genre that is completely fictional and okay. the true crime genre. Because the true crime, I mean, that really happened. Those are real people. And you get into that. And at some point, you're like, okay, I, I need a palate cleanser. I'm sorry. I, I mm-hmm. It's too much. It's too real. But I can watch horror movies all day. And like, it just, it's the only thing that interests me. And I think because it's fake and it's safe and you get to see like a lot of things played out there. Like you were talking about PTSD. I think for me, the movies that I'm most attracted to are the movies that explore loss, like grieving and how that is played out with horror movies, whether it be hauntings or, you know, finding out your family history, because that's, that's, you know, some of the stuff that I've run into, too. Like, I'm, I'm really attracted to that. I feel like it's very cathartic. But with true crime, it's so gritty and so real that I need breaks from it. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. You sent us, in preparation for this interview, a, a phenomenal article that, mm-hmm. you know, you're well quoted in. And it explores a phenomenon that Gwen and I happen to be obsessed with which is why are women obsessed with true crime? Why is it the data proves it that women are the number one audience consumers? I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I don't want you to regurgitate what was in the article. And, and you know, Gwen has spoken about that as well. But really, I want to explore that a little bit more for the benefit of our audience members who haven't read that article, but we're going to link it. Why do you think women love true crime? Well, I think Gwen definitely hit it on the head when she mentioned that women are more involved now than what they used to be. I think that was a great point. Thank and, you. And I, I think you're welcome. <laughs> I, I think that like some of the stuff that we talk about, like we we know, like women are more likely to be victims of crime. Women are more likely to be caretakers, so they're more protective of others. That might be why they're interested. And also, like you know, sometimes the stories can be empowering because we find out who got away and how they got away. 
But I think there's also a level, like a really dark side where a lot of women are already victims of something, whether that be something horrible like sexual assault or, you know, sexual harassment at the workplace. But I mean, you know, someone, if you aren't that person, you know, someone who's already gone through that, you're just waiting. You've already met someone who is a mega misogynist already. So this is you know, this, this this is something that you're going to watch because you just expect it. You're going to listen to this. You're going to try and learn how, what do you do to keep yourself out of that situation? And, and we as a society really put women in that position. We tell them, hey, be with other people in the dark. Uh, don't go out real late. Don't carry like a bunch of packages in your arms because you need one hand free. Like we put all the responsibility on women. So it makes sense that we want to listen to these true crime podcasts and be like, okay, well, I don't want to end up like that. Or here's how I get myself out of this situation. Gwen, what do you, what do you, I mean, I always Gosh. love your thoughts. They're always very insightful on this, but thoughts, I know. responses. What, what Sarah said, I, I'm just thinking women can have a radar. They know when somebody is being creepy because okay. they are the object of that creepiness most of the time. Whereas, you know, men might find somebody bizarre or weird, but women, when they find that, it's it feels like a threat. Like you you can feel it. For example, you know, there was this question of, you know, the hatred of men, misandry. Misandry is how I'm, how I'm sorry, as opposed to misogyny. And they are not the same. And that's because when women hate men, um, I'm not an advocate of hating men, by the way. Um, men are lovely creatures. You, for example, Rudy, are a wonderful being. Okay, but- Definitely a creature. Hate- definitely a creature, <laughs> as, you just, as you just referred to me. But yes, please. The reason they're not the same is because when women hate men, they stay away from them. When men hate women, they objectify them even further. It's worse. They like chase after them. The provocation. Yeah. I think there is this element that women from when we're young, we are taught of how to stay away from men. And the the other creepy thing about that, about staying away from men and being safe, is that who is telling us this? Other men. Our fathers, uncles, you know, brothers, some male friends are also the ones who are telling us to stay away from men. So women are being taught from when they're young that they are some sort of, they have to be you know, they're some sort of prey. And so they always need to be careful. And I'm wondering if sometimes the true crime, the the true crime that is sensationalized is also playing into that theme. So this was something from the article of talking about white women in particular, where there are women of all different ethnicities and races who are murdered, but the ones that are paid attention to, it seems like they tend to be white women. There's been more attention to indigenous women lately, but yeah, and that's great. There's not enough, but definitely historically, not enough. Historically, definitely not. Like the article said, Sarah, you could probably speak to this. They shot out like a statistic. Oh, by the way, there were 700 missing indigenous women in, in, a, in a particular tribe that nobody has talked about. Like, I'm glad that that was in the article and they're getting some attention, but we're a long way off from true attention, right, Sarah? Absolutely. And I, I think that you can't even really pinpoint where that goes wrong. I know that that's like sexism and classism mm-hmm. and misogyny, but like when Kendall and I are researching a story to do, we're left with whatever's out there. And I would love to do stories that don't just involve white folks, but that's not out there. You have mm-hmm. to start from something. You have to know it exists. And unfortunately, we're at this position where like, you have to make that change. You have to really search. You have to be in there. You have to be on the pulse. There is 
Okay, so this might seem like it's a bit out there, but I think that there is still a a sentiment in terms of this is the classism of white women still in some way being the property of men and they're of the highest value. And so then that's why when they are injured, it's not so much about the woman's autonomy that's being violated. It's the men who who have her. Like the men in power are thinking that could be my daughter, my wife, my sister. How dare you take from me? Because white women are still considered to be the property of a different rank. So I'm not advocating that view. I'm just saying, I think that that's still embedded in the seriousness of attacking a white woman and why it can be so sensationalized. That's a good explanation. That's a really yeah, good I mean, explanation. You're, I'm, scared of saying right. that. I'm scared of saying no, that because no, I don't really. know if it just seems like it's like, it's too, like if I seem like I've gone off the deep end, but I, I've thought about this, like, you know, what's going on? My, my students for their critical thinking class, they could do a presentation on a documentary of their choice. And so some of them did true crime. One did the Lacey Peterson case, one did Jean Benet Ramsey. And this was of they could do any kind of documentary, but those ones, of course, what is showing up is, you know, these white one is a child, one is a young woman with these beautiful smiles. And I think that there's still the sense of ownership there. And the laws I'm, the laws have reflected that over time. If you injure a white woman, the punishment historically has been higher and far more grave than a woman of color is injured. And it's only like recently where things have been leveling out more. But I think that in true crime, there's still that fascination with white women. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right there. And unfortunately, I think a lot of this comes down to just empathy and you only feel empathy for things that you care about. So if you see this happening to your wife or your daughter, maybe you don't see that happening when it's happening to women of color. And I think that's the crux of the problem here. Yeah, one of the other things that the article did, Sarah, which I found was tremendous because I believe you, uh, even though you're a podcaster, you were part and parcel of, of what this article was talking about. It seems that one of the reasons why true crime podcasts are on the rise is the fact that audience members can get involved in solving a mystery yeah. or a wrongful conviction. And Sarah, I'd love to hear a couple of examples where that's happened with respect to your seasons of podcasts like how can an audience member get involved like Gwen sitting around she becomes obsessed with this one podcast and she's like okay I actually want to learn more about this case but like how can an audience member get involved well I think that the most famous is the Innocence Project which spans across different colleges and there are people that volunteer their time that are lawyers and try to exonerate people who have been falsely convicted that's definitely something that people can look into there are other organizations for wrongful conviction and and, you know, people can donate to these organizations if they're able, like you, Rudy, if there's some, some lawyers out there that want to provide legal assistance, that's something that you can do. You can volunteer your time. You can reach out to people that you think are wrongfully convicted and just you know, have moral support. I mean, there there are things that you can do to just sort of make it a little bit more recognized, but also a little more accepted that just because you were convicted doesn't mean that you actually did it. And I mean, that's one of the things that scares me the most is that just because you're convicted, it doesn't mean that you did it. That's terrifying to me that that could happen to any one of us. No, no. It's it, one of the most terrifying things on earth is wrong, wrongful conviction. And they say, you know, the, the way that our system here is built in the United States is that it's better to let 99 guilty men go free than have an innocent man in jail. However, there are countless examples of innocent men in jail that have been freed because of the innocent projects in various states because DNA has gotten better. 
when you look at WVU co-ed murders on um, season one, if you listen to it, it's very obvious that the technology that they used in the 1970s when they were checking the hair that they found in the, in the mine, the 1970s versus the 2000s, a lot of things would have been different. Like there have been so many advances in science now that there still are innocent men behind jail. That That's clear, right, Sarah? I mean, it's very, very clear. Like, to me, when I was listening to season one, I was like, okay, one of the reasons that this is being put out there is they're probably an innocent man. A man who didn't commit the murders died in prison for various reasons. And number two, the guilty person is still out there. And so one of the reasons why you put out the podcast is to make people aware of that and maybe they can get involved. And it's mind-blowing. It really is mind-blowing to think of all of these the people that still might be in jail. You two were talking before this, uh, before we start hit recording about Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, which we did another podcast recording with Through the Licking Glass. And there is a connection. There is an actual connection between season one of the WVU co-ed murders and Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. There's a, spe- there's a particular episode that focused on the craziness of the 1970s. Like we think violent crime is happening today. We think that things... If you turn on the media, we think things are horrible. But in the 1970s, things were really crazy with the Manson murders and people running around. There's an actual reference in one of your episodes to what happened to Dr. Jeffrey McDonald in there. And he's still alive. Like he is still alive and he's still claiming his innocence. That's mind blowing. Are you familiar with that case at all? I am a little bit. I've seen a couple uh, documentaries about it, but it's been a while. I know that Jeff was really interested and that's why it made it in the book, you know, like the whole kill the pigs thing and Mm -hmm. like all of the evidence that was never really discussed in court was in in the latest documentary. Was that Errol Morris that did that? I think so. That that, that sounds familiar, but but I know that there is something that is coming. There's more stuff coming out like because this man is still alive and he's still in jail. It doesn't take much to be persuasive, right, to show certain things and make you think a certain way. So I think you have to watch these, you know, with – a little bit of, okay, but maybe I should do my own research. Uh, but the, the information that they were bringing forward, that was really compelling. I mean, it makes you wonder, and especially the people that knew him, which I guess you could say about anyone that's ever been convicted, like, nah, he didn't do it. Or, or basically anyone that's killed themselves, their family always comes to me, no, they would never do that. So when you look at the other evidence that they bring forward, like the woman with the floppy hat that they actually yep. have other witnesses to, that's pretty compelling. This stuff is – it's nuts. Um, I, I got to ask you. I want to jump in. Oh, no. You no, 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 no. Jump in. No, because no, if you don't jump in, I'm going to take we over. We can't wait. So you, gotta, you, you have to jump in. You got to get in here and ask your questions because I'm obsessed with this stuff. We're both fighting to talk with the guests. <laughs> we are. No, your, your turn. Tag, you're it. <laughs> Now, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, avonmoreinc.com. Do you play bridge or do any of your friends play bridge? Do you need a Father's Day gift? Does your father play bridge? You've got to check out avonmoreinc.com. They have everything for your next bridge party. They've got coasters, tallies, napkins, smart playing cards, which are also fantastic for kids. Go to avonmoreinc.com. I'll link that in the show notes and let them know that good is in the details sent you. Good is in the Details is partnered with Newsly.me. It is that all-in-one super app. You can get all of your news read to you in a natural human voice. Are you interested in true crime, detective stories, philosophy, transportation? Check out Newsly.me, and I will link that in the show notes. Use offer code THEDETAILS for one month free premium subscription. Okay, and now back to Good is in the Details. I mean... 
There's like, okay, so there's a couple. So I might, I might cheat a little bit and squeeze on a couple of things here because I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, wait a minute, you didn't do podcasting before and you never really listened to podcasts. So I'm wondering, Sarah, what is it about like in season one, there was a mention of there's two camps of people who are listening to your podcast. It is the people who either are aware of, you know, the history of West Virginia and are curious about that or people who love true crime. So I'm kind of curious about what it is like for you to jump into the space of podcasting and true crime. And and the other thing is that in your research, when you're going over this, even though you became curious and then wanted to create something with this, were there points where you learned something about the case and you're like, okay, I need, I need to stop for a second. I need <gasps> take a deep breath. I have to step away. And I'm thinking about that. I'm not going to repeat it because I want people to listen to season one. But there was one part where the narrator said something gruesome about the murder and said that was just as hard for me to say it as it was for you to hear it. I don't want to reveal it here. I'm just going to put a teaser out there for people to listen to. But were there any points in your research where you were like, okay, I need to take a break? <laughs> that was a lot of questions at once. I know. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to get, I'm trying to elbow out Rudy before he takes it. Okay. Rudy can go after that. Rudy, you can go in about 20 I like, minutes. I like the five, <laughs> the five compounded questions. She's good. She's really, she's the smart one if you haven't figured that out yet, Sarah. Oh, she's, she's like keeping track. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to do my best here, but she's way faster than me. I will say, though, that when you're talking about the two camps of people that were listening to the podcast, there's also sort of a third section of people that we kind of thrust into it because they didn't know what podcasts were. Because we're dealing with victims that died in 1970, so the people that would have been in their age group now, they're not necessarily familiar with podcasts. And we tried to reach out and explain what podcasts were. We basically were like, they're, they're kind of like radio shows you can listen to anytime you want. So Kendall put these podcasts on actual CDs and we distributed them through the neighborhoods for people who really weren't familiar with podcasts because we were really trying to expand the audience. And you're, you're limited when you need people who are technologically comfortable. So we passed those around. Some of the people that were involved, like writing articles or taking photographs, that's more how they chose to listen to it. I don't know if that helps answer that question, but we did We did try to push the boundary there because we didn't want to limit ourselves. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and tell me one of those More people listening to podcasts. I love it. More people listening to podcasts. Well, I want to know if there was a point in your research, since this is true crime, when you're going over the murders, so any of the research and putting this together where you were like, okay, this is too much. I need to step back and take a break and clear my head. Like, Cleanse your palate. She's in- asking for a cleanse, yeah. your, cleanse your palate moment, uh, Sarah. That's exactly what sure. she's asking. Uh, I mean, we dug into this really hard and fast there for a while because we were trying to push these out and we were trying to get more people interested and still have content for them, which is a lot easier for people who are used to that kind of flow. For me, you know, I had a day job. I had a semblance of a life. <laughs> so <laughs> this this wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I could give my all all the time. Although I was really just like hitting it hard researching, coming up for air once in a while, trying to help Jeff with like writing this book. And we'd start out with a timeline and then, you know, building that. And so like everything was just pulling me left and right. And I was getting to the point where I was having nightmares about the girls, about wow. Meredith mm-hmm. and Karen. And it's not your typical nightmare. It is the kind where you have this dream where they're still alive and they're fine. And then you wake up and that's the nightmare. 
And so like, there was a lot of that, like my brain was trying to be like, no, they're okay. Everything's fine. No, they're not. This is reality. And, and we're dealing with this. So um, I did have to take some breaks. I had to stop watching Criminal Minds completely. It was too real. I was having nightmares from Criminal Minds. I can watch any kind of horror movie. It doesn't bother me except for it part one. I got, I got nightmares from that one. But Watching something that was completely fantasy was helping, watching comedy like reruns of Community, watching It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where it's just absolutely disgusting, narcissistic comedy. One of the greatest shows. That's my client. That's that's what my wife and I use as a My wife's a surgeon and she, trust me, she sees some gruesome stuff. Her palate cleanser is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So hats off to you on that, Sarah. Absolutely. (laughs) Like you watch that and you just forget anything else exists because they just take up too much space. (laughs) But yeah. um... The the other part, which which was a very, very interesting thing, and sorry if we're fangirling you right now, is you're a a well-known true crime podcaster. What's it really like to be a well-known true crime podcaster? Well, I wouldn't say it's like in line with being famous or even infamous um some people recognize me regionally it's not like i'm in another state and and anyone knows me although i have been out to lunch with jeff and his voice is very unique and we've had someone kind of walk up and be like oh you're the podcaster guy Mm. so like there's been a couple of things like that where it just doesn't doesn't feel right (laughs) yeah because okay i'm glad you said that because that okay that's exactly where i wanted to go I'm not trying to put words into your mouth. Is it because it doesn't feel right because it's about true crime? Is it because of the gruesome nature of it? Or is there another reason why it doesn't feel right? I guess it doesn't feel right because I'm trying to give someone information and I don't feel like I'm a part of that. I'm I'm just shooting it out there. So I don't really want to... I mean, I know we're responsible for the story now. Yep, you are. But... You are. You are. You're we are. Making, you're, this case is going to get solved because of you. I hope so. That I mean, that's my hope. But, you know, I do have some people come up to me and they want to talk about stuff. And we deal with some anonymity as well. Like okay. we have our Facebook that we do not share with anyone else. We don't share that with Jam Street. We don't let anyone use that to put up ads or anything because we have people that are anonymous that need to remain anonymous. And sometimes people come up and they want to talk about things and I want to share things so bad. But I can't because unless we have some kind of proof, we're not really going to talk about it. But that doesn't mean that you're off the mark. I mean, you can come up and you can share your theories and I definitely want to hear them. But I can't ever tell you like how warm or cold you are (laughs) in terms of my opinion. Like I still have to be very unbiased about it. I think that is the hardest part is not trying to decide who's guilty already. Just trying to walk the line of like, what is the evidence? Because we need more evidence. And I always welcome people to come talk to us and share some things. And uh, a lot of people come up and they just want to share what they were doing when they found out about it. And that's fine. But, you know, it does sort of start to take over your life when that's all one all people want to talk to you about. Gosh, I feel so bad because I guess I'm one of those persons right now because that's what I want to talk to you about. But th- no, I mean that's why I'm here. <laughs> I know I mean, that you're, I, not, I, you're I, not interrupting my lunch, so that I'm like, <laughs> well, I'll just set this aside. And <laughs> fair enough. I did give you a warning, and and you know, 
I was trying to help you out on something. It was so it was so cool to like even do that small little thing for you. You do know I'm your man in California from now on. Hey, you you are invaluable. <laughs> I really appreciate you, Rudy, and I'm hoping that you're gonna stick around for this this whole like solution to that. So um... I'm, I'm here for you whenever you need me. I I'm sure Gwen has another question, but can I ge- can I geek out on a, on a Rudy aha moment really quick, Sarah? Just really really quick. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, uh, it's up to Gwen as to whether she's sick of this. Or not. <laughs> I'll <Yeah>. allow it. <laughs> this is. I, I he let talk, me do my five part, two part question. <laughs> I, I want to talk about something that I've thought about for a long time, and that's hitchhiking. Mm. I it, I can't believe. So I'm a transportation finance lawyer. All I do all day long is trying to fix transportation problems throughout the country. I write for Forbes.com. I talk about it nonstop, and it wasn't until I listened to your podcast that I had an aha moment about why the hell would people hitchhike? Why would these two young women get into a car? Hey, dummy Rudy, there were no options. There was no bus. There was no train. There was no taxi service. There was no city transit service. And it hit me right then and there. Oh my God. Transportation is really sometimes the problem of lack of transportation puts people into dangerous situations. You guys did a terrific, terrific job analyzing the first couple episodes about how the West Virginia university system went and rallied and they told people to enforce the bans on hitchhiking. And I also, I sent you a little email uh, last night, the one and only personal rapid autonomous transit system in the entire country is actually in West Virginia and it connects all the West Virginia universities. I tried to do some research into whether or not the co-ed murders had an impact on the on the establishment of that PRT system. I'm curious, did that ever come up at all? Did you did you learn about the PRT and, and hitchhiking and a little bit more about transportation just because I'm such a transportation nerd? I yeah, no, that's come up quite a bit. So Jeff and I had always tried to find that connection between, well, it, does the PRT exist because of this horrible tragedy? Like, was this WVU's answer to that? And we could never find that connection. But there was someone that did. Simon Cole and Elise Burtenthal. Simon Cole is like in the Department of Criminology, Law and Society and um, University of California, Irvine. And Elise Burtenthal is the assistant professor of law like for Wake Forest Law in, in North Carolina. So the two of them had approached us and they were like, hey, there's a connection here, right? Like there's, there's gotta be. And that was always the rumor. I mean, cause it would make sense, right? Like we don't have buses that go there, but we'll spend like several millions of dollars to get this PRT system up that goes inter campus. And they did some major sleuthing and they actually found the connection where that was being brought up and that was helping push to get the funding because they've been talking about the PRT since like the sixties. Correct. Correct. The late sixties. That is correct. Yep. Right. But it wasn't really until Merid Malarik and Karen Farrell were murdered that that started to be more of a, hey, we're going to give you some money for this. This is obvious, obviously a problem. And they wrote a whole article on it. It's not published yet, but it is fantastic. That is great. Nerding out on the PRT because I'm, I'm hopefully working on the second PRT system in the entire country. And everybody always looks to the West Virginia one. 
I'm not lying. I couldn't believe. I was like, why is there a PRT in West Virginia? Like, what what happened here? And it was a result of your podcast. It, it has led me down this rabbit hole of looking for this information. It's great so that some people figure that out. Uh, Gwen, I have asked my transportation question, and yeah. she has answered it. I, I am happy. I'm going to shut I'm up. I'm awake now. now. The, show, the show is yours. <laughs> the show is yours. Take it Take it away. <laughs> Um, this was, you know, uh, the first, and this was mentioned in your podcast, but the first, um, podcast that I got hooked on was serial. And then I just absolutely loved the true crime genre. And something that has shifted for me is I'm now a mom. I had my daughter about three and a half years ago, and I don't feel the same way about true crime. And I realized what happened was that I think that I keep thinking about the families, and this even happened when um, recently in the news, just in the the political climate and Black Lives Matter and more um, cameras rolling where you see people being seriously injured in, to, or to death. And when I see that footage, all I can think about is their family seeing that over and over again. So what I want to ask you in this true crime crime genre, how do you have that balance of history, information. There has to be an element of entertainment. Otherwise, people won't listen. But you also are respectful of the family members because I think about their family members hearing about their children being killed and all of the details. So how do you find a way to strike that balance? of respect for the families. I think that we had a major dichotomy between season one and season two, because season one happened in 1970. It was just about 50 years. I mean, it's over 50 years now. But when we started, it was just about 50 years had passed. So you don't have that immediate, oh, too soon. What about the family? Because a lot of Karen's family... The ones that are still alive, they barely knew her or never met her because that was too long ago. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like in that respect, it was more like, well, you have to be respectful because you have to be respectful. But you also don't have to worry so much about the family because the Mallorics had already said, we don't have anything to do with this. You didn't care about her daughter. We're not interested. So we never tried to bug them. I think Jeff talked to a niece of the Mallorics, you know, because they came to us. But we, we tried to do like the whole it's all about consent. As for season two, we're dealing with something that is in the court system right right now. And we were approaching the family and we were asking for their consent to talk to them. They were always very kind about it. They didn't want to talk to us, understandably. But I still think that we had a responsibility to report on what we were seeing, what we were learning. We weren't trying to paint a picture of, of someone in one way or the other. Like We certainly didn't want to demonize anyone because at the end of the day, what you have is the picture of the worst day of someone when you're looking at these cases. So you can't you can't use that and say, oh, well, this person's terrible because of this. No, they're not. Like you've learned about one horrible thing that happened. So let's unpack that and let's see what led to that. But uh, we're not out to like make anyone think one way or the other. We did try to be respectful by inviting the family to talk. If they didn't want to talk, we're still like, here, here's what we're putting out. So that if they had any objections, then, you know, they could say, hey, well, that's not true. And we would fix it. Other than that, I mean, like the difference between 50 years and something that happened now, I mean, you you had yeah. to land on your feet running for the stuff that was going on now because it was always changing and it was completely different. I appreciate so much in the first season where I think you were excited about having found out what the, the young women, what their course schedule was, what their classes 
dresses were because it told more about who they were as people. And it's not just the bodies in the forest. Like it's, it's, they had interests, they had a schedule, they had somewhere they were going. And it really resonated with me that it, this is pre-social media. So it really, they really were talked about as a couple of bodies out there that were murdered instead of people with dreams and friendships and excitement and who would skip down the road after watching a musical in the theater. So I, I think that you did really well in just establishing, hey, look, these were, these were people who were young and having a good time and that this was a really frightening thing that happened. Oh. Thank you. Um, I, I think that media sort of switched gears. The way that we talked about things in 1970, we didn't focus on the victim the way that we do now. I mean, now when you approach a case as an investigator, first thing you're going to do is look at the victim. You're going to gather all the evidence of the victimology because you want to know who they know, you know, like what overlaps, who could have done this crime. And with our co-ed murders, you've got police who just aren't trained for this. It wasn't that they were bad at their job. I mean, this this is like asking you to write a plan for something you don't know anything about, right? Like, I mean, it's not mm. fair. Um, it looks like they're in that, but that's not really the case. So they don't treat them like, oh, they're the victims. They just assume that they ran away because that's mostly what they dealt with. So we weren't looking at them in the same way that we would now. And I think it was just, it was like, it was so gratifying to find these little pieces of who they were because you weren't going to find it in the news. Uh, what little you could find of them, you weren't going to find it. So we were we were talking to people that knew them. We were going through documents that had not been publicized and like trying to figure out who they were. Like I got to talk to Karen's best friend and, you know, just to find out who she was from like five years old to 17 years old. And it was just amazing. It was like, this is this is a person that I would have hung out with. This is someone who was really kind and really smart and just, you know, had this positive outlook on life. And it just, you wouldn't see that if you just read the news. Yeah, that's so important that they're not defined by the way in which they were murdered, but that you're giving them and it's like all of the credit of what it means to be human. I love that. Thank you. It's such good work. Thank you. What has this meant to West Virginians? The success of this podcast and Appalachian Mysteria, the fact that you're trying to bring some attention to this area and to this horrific crime, like, is it a source of pride in your state? I'm just curious about that. Well, I, I mean, the crime, I don't think anyone's proud of. No, 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 no. I know that. But I mean, but you're, I'm actually talking about the fact that your this, success, this is, your journalistic your, your success, success everything that you're, you're bringing some West Virginia history. Yes, it's a sordid history, but still like, I wouldn't have known that much about West Virginia University or that much about the state, but for listening to this. So I'm just curious about how West Virginians have been reacting to this. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from people that I've never known outside of this. Some people that, you know, if I go to my husband's softball game, there's people that come up and they're like, oh, you do the podcast and, and they'll talk about it. And I really haven't gotten any major negative feedback, like anything that's negative portraying the state. I mean, we have been pretty honest about how WVU dropped the ball and making it safer for people. And I think that that hasn't really affected enrollment. I mean, the fact that they were murdered in 1970 and their enrollment was up in 1971, it wasn't going to affect it anyway. I would say that we've gotten a lot of positive feedback. I hope that people listen to this and if they had any negative attitudes or stereotypes in their mind about West Virginia, like that's kind of helping to alleviate that. We have an amazing social life in, 
in Morgantown. Uh, I've I just heard recently from someone who sort of was a transplant and they're talking about like all the amazing things and how they've got like social rides for your bicycle. You've got softball, you've got hockey, like you have all these opportunities to meet people, all these microbreweries, like there's a lot of culture here. And and I think you can hear that from the first season when you hear all of these artists that just donated this music for us to use because it was the kindness of their hearts. They wanted to help someone else with a creative endeavor. Like there's a lot of great people around here. That's awesome. That's, that's really great. I was I was just kind of curious about it. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to pick on West Virginia or, or, or say. I mean, I know like you know people have you know sometimes it's got some bad press and bad, bad things around it. And like I said, I've I've never really been there. You know, obviously Maddie's a good friend of mine, and he 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 makes little jokes about West Virginia. Although he's one of the most passionate West Virginia University fans I've ever met in my entire life. If you ever watch a sporting event with him, it's an amazing thing. I was just curious about how West Virginians have felt about it. Yeah, I, I really haven't heard too much negative about our podcast in general. And um, I haven't really heard anyone say that it's changed their opinion of West Virginia. So I'm not sure. But I will say that it does seem pretty positive on the outside. That's true. No more questions, Your Honor. No more questions. <laughs> Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dalski and Rudy Salo. If you'd like extra content and you want to support the show, we've got a new book up on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash goodisinthedetails. For as little as two bucks a month, you can support your favorite show and we'll give you a shout out on the pod. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Remember to check out our show notes to get a link to Sarah's podcast, Appalachian Mysteria. It's fantastic. And also thank you to our sponsor, Avonmore Inc. And to our partner, newsly.me. Remember to check out the show notes for that. Okay, until next time. Bye.